And we are in Genesis chapter 30. Here's a riddle. What did the rich man say after he married the two poor sisters? Answer, well, that was mighty big of me. <laughs> that was mighty bigamy, you know. You know, here are a few quotes on bigamy. A bigamist knows the meaning of double trouble. <laughs> to the bigamist, two heads are better than one. Bigamy is proof that there can be too much of a good thing. <laughs> and if a wife is a man's better half, what happens if he marries twice? Think about that for a while. Here's a poem I found called Polygamy at Christmas. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Christ is born in Bethlehem. But think of the man who marries multiple wives. He's in a pickle when Christmas arrives. A bunch of wives for which to live, even for a man with so much to give. I think he will have found there just ain't enough of him to go around. Polygamy at Christmas? What's he to do? Spend it with the family? Man, he's got two. Polygamy at Christmas, he's in a jam, turkey with Cindy, pudding with Pam, a new dress for Jean or a car for Maxine, jewelry for Lil or Jesse or Jill, a Christmas shopping list for a polygamist. Well, just wait till he gets the bill. I thought that was a lot more funny than, than, than that, but... <laughs> hey, let me say that nobody knew the perils of multiple wives more than Jacob. He was well aware of the problems you have with multiple wives. He married Leah. Then he married Rachel. Then I suppose he thought he was on a roll because he had children by Rachel's maid, Bilhah, and then later by Leah's maid, Zilpah. Jacob learned that two's company, but man, four's a crowd. Proverbs 21 verse 9 states a truth with which all husbands will agree. Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Nobody has courage enough to say amen to that, huh? <laughs> now multiply that effect times four. And you begin to understand Jacob's predicament. If ever you doubt God's wisdom in prohibiting polygamy, just wade through this chapter. Jacob lived and his kids were raised in the midst of warring women. We pick it up in verse 1. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. <laughs> As if Jacob had the power to do that. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her and she shall bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. Surrogate motherhood was a common practice in Oriental culture. You remember this was what Sarah suggested to Abraham when he had a son by her maid Hagar. His name was Ishmael. Verse 4, then she gave him Bilhah, her wife, as her maid as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. 
Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan, which means judge. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, or my wrestlings. And now a baby battle really begins to rage. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. And so she called his name Gad, which means troop. Leah is vowing that her maid is going to have a whole army of babies. She's saying, now take that. Here comes a troop. She's determined to have more kids than her sister. I'm telling you, polygamy is a bad idea. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher, which means happy. Verse 14, now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field. Now the word mandrake literally means love apples. The, ancient, the ancients believed that these mandrakes were able to enhance a woman's fertility, fertility. And so Reuben brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. This is how desperate Rachel is to bear a child. How desperate she is to keep up with her sister. She sells her husband's affections for what she thinks is a fertility drug. Well, when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. And so she called his name Issachar, which means hire. Leah somehow feels vindicated here for all she's done in this conflict with Rachel. And imagine how Rachel feels after she trades a night with Jacob for a bouquet of these mandrakes. And now she sees that Leah has conceived and has given birth again. She is mad. She is frustrated. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. And so she called his name Zebulun, which means dwelling. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. And of course, the word Joseph means to add. And the Lord will add to her another son, but it will come at a steep price. 
For when we get over to chapter 35, Jacob and Rachel will enter into the land of Canaan. And as they near Bethlehem, Rachel goes into a life-ending labor. She gives birth, all right, to a son named Benjamin, but it will cost her her life. Verse 25. And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me go, for you know my service which I have done for you. It's time for Jacob to head home. And Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, Name me your wages, and I will give it. In other words, Laban is asking Jacob, Hey, what's it going to take to keep you around for a little while longer? And so Jacob said to him, you know how I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what, have you, for what you had before I came was little, and it is now increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now when shall I also provide for my own house? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall, give me, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. Now in the Middle East, even to this day, most sheep are white, solid white, and most goats are brown or black. Solid pigmentation is the dominant trait. According to the laws of genetics, there are recessive and dominant traits. Solid pigmentation is caused by dominant genes. Spotted or speckled skins are recessive traits. Now obviously Laban thinks that he's going to end up with far more livestock than Jacob because Jacob asked for the spotted and the speckled while he decides to leave Laban with the solid color animals. Verse 33, though, tells us, So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. And Laban said, Oh, that it were according to your word. In other words, this, ben this arrangement really benefits Laban. Yeah, I like this, he said. By cutting out from the herds the speckled and the spotted animals, there's now even less chance for them to produce more speckled and spotted. And so Laban likes the whole notion. He thinks this is going to be a windfall for him. And so he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hands of his sons, then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Laban took Jacob's speckled and spotted herds and put them at a distance between him and Jacob. And Jacob continued to care for Laban's herds. But in verse 37, Jacob employs an unusual practice. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs, 
where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive when they came to drink. And so the flocks conceived before the rods and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Perhaps Jacob here engaged in a form of selective breeding. It could be that somehow he matched up certain uh, types and, and certain traits and genetic situations in order to maximize uh, the, the birth of, of the speckled and the spotted. It's also possible that the rods that he placed in the gutters or in the feeding, the watering troughs, actually contained some kind of a chemical in them that affected the pigmentation so that there would end up being more speckled and spotted. We're not really sure exactly what was behind his methods here, but obviously God blessed him and caused his herds, the speckled and the spotted, to increase. Here's also another possible interpretation of what's going on here. When you flip over to chapter 33, verses 10 through 12, those verses indicate that God gave to Jacob a dream where he saw the speckled and spotted of the herd, that they would be more prosperous than the solid colors. Of course, genetically speaking, this was improbable, but God worked in spite of the scientific laws in order to bless Jacob. And it could be that Jacob is here acting in faith. He's acting in faith based on the promise that he received in that dream. In other words, God is not blessing Jacob's cleverness here as much as he's blessing his faith. And isn't this the lesson that God has been trying to teach Jacob all along? Because here's the guy who had trusted in his cleverness. Here is the guy who had resorted to deception and manipulation to steal his brother's birthright and then to deceive his own father. In both cases, if he'd just trusted God, if he'd waited on God, if he had walked by faith, God would have worked all those situations out for his good and for God's glory. But instead, Jacob is always getting in God's way, trying to work things out through his own ingenuity. Perhaps here God is trying to teach him that, hey, this is, this is a situation where I'm going to work despite the probabilities. Here's a situation where you need to trust not in your cleverness, but that you need to trust in me. Perhaps he's trying to show Jacob that it's time to trust rather than scheme. Well, verse 40 tells us, Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the street and all the brown in the flock of Laban. But he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. The weak sheep bred the weak and the healthy bred with the healthy and thus it made Jacob's herd stronger. And it came to pass whenever the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Through it all, God prospered Jacob and grew his herds. Chapter 31. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all, his, all this wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. 
Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Now God had put this desire in his heart earlier. To go home. It's time to go home. But he's had to wait. And in the process, God has blessed him. And whenever God requires us to wait, guys, it's because he wants to bless us. It's because he wants to prepare us. Now, though, the time is to act on that earlier desire. And so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field, to his flock, and said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckle. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In other words, Jacob is admitting really that it hasn't been his breeding techniques that's caused him to prosper. It's been God's blessing. Hey, if Laban said, you'll get the speckled, the speckled were born. If he said, you get the streaked, the streaked were born. God was working. God was the one who blessed him. You know, this is what frustrates me when it comes to a lot of these church growth conferences that are now being held today. You know, it seems that every time a church grows, the pastor, in turn, wants to hold some kind of a seminar to teach his own particular methods and his own particular techniques to the pastors. It's as if he's promoting his own cleverness rather than giving the credit and the glory to God. You know, whatever happened, man, the God just blessed us. We weren't doing anything. We didn't know what we were doing. But you know, God blessed us. And God worked. And God accomplished something. Jacob admits, this isn't his brilliance. This is God's blessing that has increased his flock. Verse 10. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob. Again, this is the dream that may have brought about uh, the arrangement that they had formed earlier. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Jacob, in other words, received some insider information. It was like receiving a stock market tip from an angel, no less. Pretty trustworthy source there. They can't send you to jail if it's from an angel. And notice, it's not just any angel. Notice that. We're told, but the angel or messenger of God. Notice who this messenger is. He says, I am, he says the angel of God. And then he says, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar, and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. Here the angel identifies himself as God, as the one true God who met Jacob at Bethel before he left to go to Haran in the first place. Obviously, this angel, if he claims to be God, has to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I believe it was Jesus here that was appearing to Jacob. Verse 14, Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, 
Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Now, amazingly, the sisters finally come together. They finally agree on something. They agree on their common greed. Are we not considered strangers by him? Where's our inheritance in all this? Where's daddy's allotment to us? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. They no longer have any loyalty to their father Laban. Now they're ready to move on and follow Jacob. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. And he carried away all his livestock and all the possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. In other words, Jacob loads up his caravan and he tries to sneak out of town. Verse 19. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Now he, Jacob is sneaking out of town while Laban is out shearing the sheep. He doesn't really want a confrontation with Laban. He just wants to kind of get out of Dodge while he can. He's, he's, he's moving at midnight, you know. And, and it says here that Rachel had stolen the household idols. Now there are some that assume by that that Rachel was an idolatress. That's not what this means. Remember the reason that Rebekah sent her son to Haran in the first place was so that he could find a wife that was a believer, not an idolater. I think a better explanation for Rachel's actions here is that these idols, or teraphim as they're called, they, they symbolized household ownership. They, they were sort of the family heirlooms, you might say. And so by her taking these, she was essentially saying that her in the inheritance belonged to her. It was her claim to the family's fortune. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. I mean, he's trying to avoid any confrontation with Laban. And so he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river Euphrates, and he headed toward the mountains of Gilead 300 miles away. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. That means that Jacob had a three-day head start. Then Laban took his brethren with him and pursued Jacob for seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. God was protecting Jacob in advance. And so Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. Do you really think you would have? I mean, through all of this breeding and through God's blessing. I mean, basically, Jacob has taken over his whole herds, all of his possessions. Now he's leaving with his, with his daughters and his grandkids. And Laban is not a happy camper here. Verse 28. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying... 
Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? He's talking about those household idols. But isn't that a funny thought? Why did you steal my gods? Who'd want a God that could be stolen in the first place? (laughs) If your God's not powerful enough to not be stolen, you don't have much of a God. This is the folly of idolatry. Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. He says, go, look. Find who took your idols and I'll have them killed. Boy, if he had just known who had taken them. Remember, Jacob met the true God at Bethel. And he would never again be tempted to worship a false god. In essence, he's... He's just saying, whoever took your idol, just find him. Have him killed. He doesn't know it was Rachel. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. Rachel says she can't get up. And she blames it on the time of the month. And what father is going to question that? I mean, Laban just backs off at this point. And he searched but did not find the household God. Smart girl. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household idols, your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. Jacob gets bold here. He stands up to his father-in-law. It's what some of you might need to do. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young. And I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand. Whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. In the day the drought consumed me. And the frost by night. And my sleep departed from my eyes. Man, I've been a faithful shepherd to you. I've watched over your flocks. What more do you want? I've worked long and hard for you. Let me go. And thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and notice this name, and the fear of Isaac has been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed God has seen my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. But notice an unusual name for God. Verse 42 tells us that God is called the fear of Isaac. You remember when 
Isaac blessed the younger son, Jacob, over the older son, Esau. It was because he'd been tricked in one sense. He had been deceived. But in another sense, God had fulfilled a promise that the younger son would be blessed above the older son. It was really not because of the deception. It was because of the will of God. It was almost as if God had pulled rank on Isaac. And God had done his will in spite of him rather than because of him. And when suddenly he realized, wow, look what I've just done. I've just fulfilled the promise of God, and that's not what I was intending to do. Wow, God was sovereign over this situation. God accomplished his will and his purpose. When it hit Isaac, that that's what had happened. Yeah, he, he, he said, wow. There was a reverence. There was a respect for God. Wow, God is greater than I thought he was. God is bigger. God is over all things. God is working out his will no matter what. And it's the fear of Isaac. Isn't that interesting? And God took that as a name for himself. The fear of Isaac. Verse 43. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Notice he's talking about you know, these are my children. This is my flock. You know, look what my, these are the children that my daughters have born. He never mentions that Jacob had a role in all of this. That Jacob was siring these sons, that he was growing this flock. I guess you could say this is a classic case of possessive in-laws. By the way, remember at the creation, God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Married couples need to follow that process. They need to leave and then cleave. There needs to be a break with mom and dad. There needs to be a severing of the relationship with the parents. And there needs to be a new bond and a primary bond formed between the husband and the wife. Jacob is wise here in creating some separation between his family and his meddling father-in-law Laban. Laban suggests, now therefore... Come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jigar Sahadatha. Jigar Sahadatha. But Jacob called it Galid. And both terms mean heap of witness. Laban's name was Aramaic, whereas Jacob's name was Hebrew. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid, also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. Mizpah means watch. And Laban is saying, May God watch you like a hawk. You've got my daughters. You've got my grandkids. May God keep his eye on you. Verse 50 sounds like a skeptical father-in-law. He says, if you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Next time a guy comes over to date your teenage daughter, fellas, there's your line for him right there. If you afflict my daughters, 
If you mistreat my girls, I'm trusting God to work you over, buddy. After I get through with you. <laughs> then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you shall not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. This pile of rocks, Laban, is going to be the boundary between me and you. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, who was Abraham's father, and the God of their father judged between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned to his place. Understand, Jacob has returned home to Canaan, a humble man. When he left, he was a double-crosser. He returns having been double-crossed by Laban. In fact, in verse 41, he says that Laban had reneged on his promises and changed his wages ten times. But Jacob has learned that God is faithful. And despite what man might do to you, God is faithful and that God keeps His promises. And that God has prospered His herds. And that God has delivered him from the hands of Laban. And God has blessed him, not because of his ingenuity and his manipulation, but because of God's grace. Now this man, Jacob, is a man who once trusted in his own schemes, but now he's learning that he can trust in God. Here is a man who is growing in his faith. When we come to verse 1 of chapter 32... And we have a description of an event that must have been a profound experience in Jacob's life. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means double camp. Jacob realizes that God is now camping with him. What an amazing experience this must have been. It's amazing. It just kind of gets passed over in one verse. But, but he saw the angels of God. And he saw them camping with him. He saw them watching over him. He saw that he was not alone, but that God had sent forces to protect him and go before him. Yes, there's a physical camp that's occupied by Jacob's family, but there's also a spiritual camp that's occupied by angels on assignment, angels that have been sent to protect him. And if you're a child of God, I believe that there's a troop that's been dispatched, an army of angels that are camping with you too. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 refers to angels as ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. That's what angels are. They're there to minister to you, to protect you, to watch over you. Hey, do I believe in guardian angels? You betcha I do. And I keep mine working overtime, I'll tell you. Verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent 
to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Now Jacob has just left an adversary in Laban, but now he faces a confrontation with another adversary, Esau. And remember the last time he heard from Esau? Remember, his brother wanted to kill him. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. And notice there's no indication here of Esau's motive, just that he's coming to meet him with 400 men. And I don't know about you, but an army of 400 men marching across the desert doesn't sound like the welcome wagon to me. I'm sure that Jacob was shaking in his boots. As a matter of fact, it says, So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. You know, he's designing an evasive maneuver here in the case of an attack. You know, Jacob really doesn't know what to expect from Esau. All he knows is that Esau's anger and his hatred has had 20 years to now brew and come to fruition. And he's worried, is he on the warpath or not? Well, verse 9. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children." And then he reminds God of his promises. I like this. You know, this is always a good way to pray. I hope that when you pray, you remind God of his promises. He says, For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the first recorded prayer in all of the Bible. Right here. And it's a man who prays the promises of God. I'm telling you, that's a good thing to pray. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. Not a bad thing. 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. This was a sizable peace offering. And he's going to send it ahead of him. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. In other words, spread it out. It'll appear more impressive that way. And he commanded the first one, saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. And so he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. And he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And so the present went on before him, but he himself lodged that night 
in the camp. Jacob is still calculating. He's still a plotter. He's still a planner. Here he's calculating for maximum effect. He sends his gifts out in waves of welcome to sort of gradually soften up Esau's heart. Here's the only problem. Once again, Jacob concocts a plan and relies on his own wisdom. He's trying to manipulate the situation rather than trust in God. And of course, this has been his lifelong problem. God is about to cure him of it, though, once and for all. Verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. The name Jabbok means emptying. And it's a tiny little stream that comes off of the mountains and empties down into the Jordan River. But this name is also prophetic. For here at the Jabbok, this is where Jacob empties himself of his confidence and his self-reliance and his self-dependence and self-assurance. He took his family, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was alone. And underline those words, Jacob was alone at the Jabbok. Jacob comes to the end of his rope. He has emptied himself of all of his confidence. He is alone. He is vulnerable. Now Jacob is worried that at any time Esau is going to jump out of the bushes and try to kill him. Mama isn't around anymore to save his skin. Jacob knows at this time the only thing that he can do is to be totally dependent upon God. He faces the dark of the night. He faces an uncertain tomorrow. And all he has at his disposal now is faith alone. At the brook called emptying, Jacob empties himself. And when a man empties himself, he will soon see the face of God. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And I'm sure at first Jacob thought it was Esau. Esau's attacking me. Esau's jumped out of the bushes. He wants to kill me with his bare hands. And they're wrestling and they're tossing and they're scrapping and they're rolling on the ground. And remember, Esau was a tough guy. He was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter. He was a killer. Imagine Jacob is flailing and fighting for his very life. Verse 25. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob fought so furiously and so ferociously, the man that he was wrestling with tried to loosen Jacob's grip. And so he reached down and he touched Jacob's hip socket and threw his hip out of joint. It must have been painful. I imagine Jacob like a football player who you know, grabs for his hamstring or grabs for his knee once he twists and blows out the ACL or whatever. I can imagine Jacob grabbing you know, his hip with his hands, wincing in pain. And the man who was wrestling with Jacob said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. As dawn approaches, it dawns on Jacob. that This isn't Esau he's been wrestling with. This isn't Esau he's been tangling with. This is a divine wrestler. In fact, the man asks him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And the name Israel means Prince of God. It was through this experience that Jacob goes from being a heel catcher, a deceiver, a double crosser, into being a Prince of God. Guys, let me ask you a question. Have you been wrestling lately? You've been wrestling and scrapping lately? Perhaps you thought you were wrestling with your wife, or with your kids, or with your boss, or with your ex-spouse, or with some bully in the neighborhood. But in reality, could it be that you've been wrestling with God? All your life you've manipulated and connived to get your way, but now you've met your match. You've encountered a situation where you know you need help. That's what happens to Jacob here. And notice what he does. When, he dawns, when it dawns on him that he's wrestling with none other than God, he stops his wrestling and he starts praying. He tightens his grip. He refuses to let go until he receives a blessing. He finally admits his need. Hey, Jacob is desperate for God's blessing. He surrenders. He no longer fights with God. He now embraces God. He replaces a headlock with a hug. But here's what's so intriguing. He now puts as much effort in his faith as he did in the fight. He went from wrestling to grabbing hold of him and holding on to him tightly. This is how God wants us to approach him. When we realize that we've been wrestling with God, that we've been bucking against him, we need to surrender and we need to grab hold of God and request his blessing. We need to take all the effort that we had exhausted in fighting Him and spend it in following Him. We need to cry out to God for His highest and holiest and richest blessing and not let go until we receive all that God has for us. Notice verse 29. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means face of God. He says, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. That's why I say all the time he thought he was wrestling with Esau. In reality, he was wrestling with God. In fact, I believe it was none other than our Lord Jesus with whom Jacob wrestled with all night. And I've known many a person, myself included, who has wrestled with the Lordship of Jesus before sincerely surrendering and seeking God's best for my life. There was a time when I was a mighty wrestler. When I fought it, when I refused to surrender, when I bucked the will of God, finally when I realized God for who He is, when I realized His greatness and His glory, instead of fighting Him, I clung to Him. And I asked for his blessing, and I've never been the same since. Verse 31. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Notice he wrestled with God, but it cost him. And you can wrestle with God if you like, but it'll cost you. It took away his pride and his self-sufficiency. And for the rest of his life, Jacob limped. And what is a limp but a sign of weakness? 
It's a permanent reminder that you can't stand on your own two feet. It's a permanent reminder that you should walk by faith, not according to your own cleverness. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. And this is a tradition that's still practiced by the Orthodox Jews even today. Well, chapter 33 tells us what happened the next morning. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. And so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? And he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. What a beautiful picture to see God restoring a broken family. Verse 6. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? In other words, he's talking about all these gifts that have been coming at him in waves. You know, what's this all about? And Jacob said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Isn't it amazing that once a man makes peace with God, he can make peace with everyone else he's been fighting with? Isn't that amazing? Jacob realizes that the hostility with Esau has been his own fault. Esau hasn't been his enemy. Jacob has been his own worst enemy. And that can be true of us as well. Hey, when a man makes peace with God, peace with his brother will follow. Jacob is so grateful for what God has done. In verse 11, he begs Esau to take his gift. He says, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. Even though this reunion and this reconciliation are wonderful, Jacob also knows that spiritually speaking, he and his brother don't really have a lot in common. They're headed in different directions. And they're so, so there's no real need for them to continue traveling together. And so they just sort of make their peace. And Esau says, you go your way, I'll go my way. Verse 15, And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths or shelters for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth or booths. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, 
which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. Now, Jacob made a wise decision to separate himself from Esau. But as we'll see in chapter 34, it was a poor decision to settle next to this pagan city of Shechem. And he bought the parcel of land which he had pitched his tent, where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And for the first time, Jacob builds an altar. He is now a worshiper, a worshiper of God. Now we're going to try to do chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now remember, Dinah was the only sister in a family of 12 brothers. I can understand why she would need some female companionship, don't you? All she really wanted to do was to find a girlfriend to hang out with. But sometimes even such an innocent desire can lead us astray. For understand, the likelihood of finding the right kind of friend in the wrong kind of place is not very good. I hope you high school kids heard that. The likelihood of finding the right kind of friend in the wrong kind of place is not very good. And Shechem was the wrong kind of place. Shechem was a Canaanite city. It was full of wickedness and idolatry. And Dinah is about to meet it head on. And when Shechem the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. The prince turned out to be a pervert. The son of the king of Shechem raped the daughter of Israel. And his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Give me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. On the heels of Jacob's spiritual breakthrough, his newfound faith is tested with a tragedy. And guys, the most difficult tests by far are those which bring harm to our kids. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourself. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourself in it. Notice, an apology is never offered. Verse 11. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. The rapist doesn't even apologize either. Instead, he tries to cover up his crime with a huge dowry. He wants to buy off their approval. 
And this really made Dinah's brothers mad. They were pretty ticked. Verse 13. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Now they give a religious reason for the circumcision. But these brothers, they've got some other motives. They've got another plan. They're about to avenge their sister. Verse 18. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem his son came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. And indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. Verse 24. And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamar and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. <laughs> oh boy. Mm, man, I can feel that pain. I just had a hernia operation. But that's nothing compared to a circumcision. These are adult males, man. They, they've just had this, they've just been circumcised with no anesthesia. These guys are in pain. These guys are sore. They are hurting. They are totally incapacitated. They are sitting ducks. And two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all of the males. And they killed Hamar and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And it sort of illustrates the old phrase, don't get caught with your pants down. <laughs> Here's a serious case of just that. Well, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their city had been, sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, they took captive and they plundered even all that was in their houses. And notice, all this brutality was done without Jacob's knowledge or approval. This is excessive. I know what they did to Dinah, but this is excessive. To go through to kill the, all the males in the city, to plunder everything, to wipe out and slaughter the city. And it was all done without Jacob's knowledge and approval. Hey, this is an important point. Jacob has lost control of his family. 
And later we'll see that when the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, they'll lie to Jacob. Jacob's totally unaware. Apparently, Jacob was a very weak leader at home. He played favorites among siblings. We'll see that later too. He was a stranger to his kids. And it could be that one of the reasons that Dinah fell into the hands of the prince is that she was looking for a father's love in the wrong place. Looking for a love that her own father never provided for her. Fathers, we need to love our daughters. And dad, if you don't love your daughter in a wholesome and healthy way, she will find love in an unhealthy way in the arms of a pagan Shechem. Well, verse 30 says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. I'm sure the brothers were thinking, You didn't do anything, and so we did. You didn't lead, and so we took action. Guys, that's what will happen. If the father doesn't stand up and take control of his home. And notice here, this is an example of Jacob's leadership. All he cares about here, notice, is his own reputation. This is what the people will think about me. What might possibly happen to me? If he had cared as much about Dinah and her needs, the whole incident may have never happened. Verse 31, but they said, but they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? It took the boys of the family to care about their sister. What they did was wrong. What they did was savage. What they did was excessive. But at least they cared. And Jacob certainly shared the blame. Guys, it's a rule. When a father refuses to take charge, his kids will take over. And we'll close on that note. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons tonight. We've covered a lot of material. And we thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts in so many different ways. Lord, if there's someone here tonight that's wrestling with you, that's fighting you, that's struggling and kicking against your will for their lives, Lord, I pray that they would surrender. And rather than fight, I pray that they would hug and embrace you, and hold on to you, and plead for your blessing. Lord, you're a great God, a merciful God, who responds not to our schemes and our manipulation, but who responds to our faith. Lord, bless us because of your grace. Bless us, Lord, because of your mercy. May you be glorified. May you be praised for your love toward us, for your never-ending working in our lives, Lord. Bless us this coming week. Go before us, Lord. Camp your angels around us. Help us to remember that we live in Mehanaim. We live in the double camp, that our house is surrounded by angels, that we're protected by you, that you go before us, that you watch over us. We love you, Lord. 
We ask that you bless us in wonderful ways this coming week. And may we be a blessing to others and to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.